0: Oh, that was a blessing. Um, so, today we're staying in our series that we started last week called Stand. And you know, we open that and it's, it's, it's all focused on the armor of God. And so often in church settings when we talk about the armor of God, we get this, this rah-rah speech boiling down to essentially fight harder, try harder, do better, be better... Ah, You got everything you need. Go be better. And that's not what we saw last week. You know, after looking at the text last week, you know, Paul is, is actually trying to share something very different. We see that we are actually strengthened by an incredible and endless power source. It's not that we have to provide the power. We receive the power. And for that power, we're given to put on this thing that we're calling the armor of God, the full armor. Very important that we understand that it's, it's an all or defeat type of proposition. You wear all of this armor. But, you know, putting on the full armor of God is really just, as we saw, just Paul's fancy way to say, put on Christ. Put on Christ. We get to put on Christ. Think about that. The almighty God, the maker of heaven and earth, the one who is all and is in all. He is the great I am and he comes in human flesh. Why did he come? Why did he have to come? Because we have to realize, you know, there is this powerful force that's against us, that hates us. You know, Satan and his schemes, the wiles of the devils, what we talked about last week. That stretch beyond just the physical realm for our, our battle is not against just flesh and blood. But it goes in the spiritual realm that's that's beyond even what we can comprehend at times. And he longs for us to slide backwards. But we're told last week: stand firm. Stand firm. All right, our our expectation is not to advance. Not to attack, but to stand firm. We related that back to essentially saying, as you put on Christ with the armor of God, cling desperately to Jesus. Cling desperately to our Lord and Savior. You know, one of the things that I have to cling desperately to Jesus for put on the armor of God constantly because I get tested in this area on a regular basis is being a dad. And I get the beautiful chance to be, to be a dad, and you know, one of the things, and it kind of relates to the armor of God is the sense that, you know, I, I'm pretty simple. I mean, you see me right now, I would like to say, like, here I am, you know? When I was a teacher, I would constantly hear from my, my students, Mr. Richards, Every day, you wear the same thing. It's always a collared shirt and khaki pants. Always. And then I was a principal, and I was supposed to dress up nice. Well, I didn't like dressing up nice. I just wanted to wear khaki pants and a collared shirt and be done with it. And actually, I had the system in my closet where I really only have one pair of khaki pants, this is what I wear every week. I'll go ahead and just confess that. Um... (laughs) So y'all can judge me if you want to. But I'd have this like, you know, I don't know, eight or ten until I get a stain on them, which is inevitably going to happen. My coffee's going to get right here. Um, I just have them aligned in my closet and I wear this one and then it goes in the back and then I wear this one and it goes to the back. And so y'all can't say, Pastor Chris, every week you wear the same thing. And you know, this is totally okay until I became a girl dad. And then this is what I have to deal with. You know, accessorizing. And dresses and sparkles and this has to match, this has to match, this has to match this. And I'm like, I don't even know what you're talking about. Like it doesn't even make sense and it's just hard. And like, But if I can't find the right shoes to go with the right thing and, and it just is like, it's overwhelming at times. So I'll be honest, but the beautiful thing The beautiful thing that I rest in is the fact that the armor of God is not like this, okay? That's been kind of one of the things that I've focused on um, here this week, just laughed at myself. And, you know, today for the next few weeks, we're going to be unpacking the individual pieces of the armor of God. Now, the armor of God is not like my daughters that have to accessorize everything and things have to look different. You know, there's a couple things that we can really rest in as we look at each piece of the armor of God. And so there's a few things, as, as today we're going to be looking at a couple pieces, and then actually next week David's going to be preaching, and DJ's going to share with us a piece. And as we kind of wrap up um, going through each individual piece, there's, there's things that we pray that you understand about the armor of God. The armor of the God, armor of God is the gospel. Put on Christ, the good news of salvation. The armor of God is the gospel. It's what we have access to because of what Christ Jesus, our Lord, did for us. It was His perfect life, His willing and humiliating death, His humble burial in a borrowed tomb, and His triumphant resurrection to defeat death. We just sang about that. The armor is the gospel. Now, each piece unlike my daughters who dress and every piece has their own importance, which I just still don't understand. But each piece in the armor of God, it's simple, all right? So if you're like me, it's simple. Every piece is an inseparable part of the whole. You can't pull one piece away from the other. All of them fit together. It's the full armor of God. As I said, it's an all or defeat proposition. You can't have this piece without the others. So today, I just want you to rest in those as we talk about, we do kind of individualize the pieces, but you'll see how they fit together and they work together. But today we're going to be talking about the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness. The belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness. So, let's read about it. So if you would, open up in your Bibles, we're going to be in Ephesians 6, and then we're actually going to flip over to Isaiah 11. So we're going to get over into the Old Testament a little bit and kind of see some some pictures moving forward. So if you're willing and able, I would love for you to stand with us as we just show by our posture the weight that we put on God's Word. For this is the Word of the Lord. It does not change. It is true. It is what we rest in. So Ephesians 6, verse 10, it says, Finally, so that you will be able to resist in the evil day, and having done everything, to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. And now we flip over to Isaiah 11, 1 through 5. It says, Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and strength, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. And he'll not judge by what he, his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. And then verse 5, also righteousness will be of the belt around his loins, and faithfulness and truth the belt of his waist. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. You may be seated. We start here with the belt of truth, as that's how Paul started, so we'll start there. Now to do that, we've got to kind of rewind, so we're going to have a little bit of a history lesson, so bear with me real quick as we kind of unpack and see kind of how the Bible portrays and points to the importance of the belt of truth. We can look all the way back into Genesis. Here in Genesis 3, 1 through 7, we're not going to turn there, we're just going to summarize it, but Satan's wiles take center stage. This is where he makes his kind of initial appearance. We're introduced to him in the middle of this beautiful Garden of Eden in the form of a serpent. He's crafty. He's smooth-tongued. He knows the questions to ask and how to ask them. He's a skilled defense attorney who knows the truth better than you do. And his rebuttals are perfectly crafted to implant a seed of doubt into truth. Or just to establish a loophole. If he can just get a loophole that he can tuck away later to come back and start pricking at it. You know, we like to say, and this is kind of how we can sum it up, is the devil wants to deceive you in regards of the word of God, the work of God, and the worth of God. He wants to deceive you in regards to the word of God, the work of God, and the worth of God. So he's going he's to pick at. He's going to pull at that. Put seeds of doubt in there. Well, in the garden, he lays out that attack on Eve. Of course, like many of us. Adam and Eve gave in. They ate the apple. Separation from the connection with God happens. And here sin enters into the world. Brokenness, pain, and suffering begin to enter. And the thing is, this has been our reality ever since. They were banished from the garden. We have longed to be in relation with God. Perfect relationship with God. Perfect community with God ever since. Satan deceiving us in regards to the truth of the word of God, the work of God, and the worth of God. You know, we don't just see that in the garden, then we kind of start to fast forward kind of through the pages of the Old Testament, and as we go through those pages, we begin to see this cycle happening, and there's constant examples in the Old Testament of people enjoying his goodness. Oh, man, being in God's presence is so good. And then the wiles of Satan begin to work. And as we said even previously this summer, we say, oh, Lord, it's so good. And then we realize what we've gotten ourselves into, and we say, oh, Lord, this ain't good. This ain't good. Constantly through Scripture, there's, there's places where they point back to the, the great things that God has done over a long period of time. We actually read one in our prayer meeting this morning in Nehemiah 9. It points back to the goodness of who God is and then the brokenness of the people and then the, the goodness of who God is and then the brokenness of the people and it just keeps on going over and over and over again. And you know, That's what we've experienced over and over and over today. And, you know, even today, I think about myself. It's easy for me to kind of thumb my nose at those people, but man, it's a mirror to my life. How often I have been and, and, and just had God's goodness in my grasp, and I'm like, "You know what? I'm going to do it my way. My way's always better. No, it's not. And then I realize, man, this ain't good. You know, we desire to stand firm. We desire to be that valiant warrior, that one who is to hold the ground and to advance and to attack. But the unfortunate reality, especially in my life, and I know some of you would probably admit this as well, is that spiritual feed is more of a descriptor of who I am than anything else. I'm like, oh man, I need help. And then we see this thing start to happen even from the very beginning, God, is, as he knows the cycle of his people, he's like, all right, I got you. He's not leaving us hanging. And in the admits, and here, what we saw in, in Israel, I'm sorry, in Isaiah 11, we see the people of Israel. Right before this, they had made some horrible decisions. They are God's chosen people. They mess up. And God just banishes them, right? Never. Never would God do that. And he shows us His promise in Isaiah 11. In the midst of Israel's like one millionth defeat, one millionth bad decision, he brings out this beautiful prophecy. And what it starts painting is this picture of this mighty warrior. And he described it, we just read the description, but just as a summary to remind us, it's this mighty warrior who's filled with wisdom. Filled with understanding. Guarded with strength. There's knowledge. There's delight in the reverential awe of the Lord. Now listen to this, he'll... He will rightly judge. He will rightly judge and decide fairness for the afflicted, for the disenfranchised, and for the least of these. We long for this. We long for this. And then he'll say, even said, he will slay the wicked with his breath. Now, I'll be honest, that made me me laugh a little bit. My kids used to tell each other they got hot breath. So, I was like, Jesus must have hot breath, maybe. I don't know. That's just your pastor's small mind. But anyway, going back to it. But then we get to verse 5. It shows us what we're looking for today. But verse 5, here it comes. Also, righteousness will be the belt about his loins. And faithfulness, the belt of his waist. Here he's saying Jesus is coming, and he will wear, wear Faithfulness. He will wear faithfulness. Now, we say faithfulness, but well, what does faithfulness have to do with truth? We're talking about the belt of truth. Well, the way typically from Hebrew into Greek that it's translated, you think about someone who is always faithful, who always does what they say they're going to do. You can say that they would be of truth. So here, and faithfulness is the belt of his waist. Here, he will always do what he says he's going to do, Here the truth is the belt of his waist. The truth is the belt of his waist. And then it says that, and in the very beginning of that, also righteousness will be the belt of his loins. Righteousness will wrap him, will wrap his vital organs. And actually it's an allusion also to Isaiah 59, 17 where it says the breastplate of righteousness will be worn by the warrior. So here we have this mighty warrior that's our example, put on Christ. He wears truth, the belt of truth. So we looked here to Paul. Paul was looking at a Roman soldier that he was was chained to, the belt of truth. So what is a belt? Well, we know a belt. I've got a belt on now to keep my pants from falling down. You can't do anything when your pants are falling down. All right, so you know kind of what the, the point of a belt is. It holds everything together. It loosens things. You can tuck your shirt in, hold your shirt in, all that kind of stuff. Here's your belt. We understand that. Well, for a Roman soldier in that t- time, the belt was very important. They wore those loose-flowing clothing because of the, the the heat at that time. We just think it's hot here in Pittsburgh. It's really hot where they were. So the loose-flowing clothing, they would use the belt to gird up all the loose clothing. So they would tie on that belt nice and tight to make sure that it stayed. Oftentimes, when the, the, the soldier put on all the armor, the belt would actually disappear. You wouldn't see the belt. It would be an assumed thing that that soldier, who's all dressed up, actually has a belt on underneath all their armor. Sometimes... They would use a type of belt to sheath their sword. So I always think about like a little kid who wants to to fight their dad and they take their belt and they stick their lightsaber in their belt and something like that. I don't think that's what the Roman soldier did, but you can kind of picture that. But mostly, it was to gird up all the loose clothing. It held everything together so the armor, every single piece of armor would function appropriately the belt of truth. You know, our culture tells us to base the development of our truth or my truth on personal experience and the emotion of the moment. How do you feel? What does your heart tell you right now is true? But you've got to kind of ask yourself the question, how many of us in here are completely stable and completely confident and completely grounded all the time. There should be no hands up, okay? All right. I don't know about you, but my, my emotions at times change with the wind, okay? And we know how the wind in Pittsburgh is, right? Or the weather in Pittsburgh. If you don't like it, way a day, it will change, I promise. You know, so if when I listen to culture, my truth then is developed on this weak foundation, Thing is, when we develop weak truth, when we base base all of our decisions on this, this truth that's based on the shifting sand, we we believe it to be true, but it's it's movable and shapeable and changeable, and then we got a problem. And so then we're challenged with our truth, our truth is is attacked. What's our first response? But anger and resentment and frustration. You know, the beautiful thing about truth is truth need not fear scrutiny. Truth need not fear scrutiny. You know, I was watching the the trial. You might not, some of you might know about this. There was a big trial in the state of South Carolina. Uh, Alec Murdoch, the low country of South Carolina, he apparently killed his wife and son. There was this big trial. Well, being from South Carolina, you know, it's kind of a big deal for us. And we were kind of all up in the drama of it and watching it and, He was lying. My man was lying, lying. And one of the commentators said after they cut away from the trial one day, he said it takes more energy to defend a lie than it does to tell the truth. Man, when I develop my truth and I push things away and I get angry, it's such a problem. You know, this is where we start as followers of Jesus Christ. We get to start at truth. Christianity does not claim to be a truth. Christianity does not claim to be one of many truths. Christianity and the claims of Scripture unambiguously claim to be the truth. Jesus says, John 14, 6, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. The truth of Christianity, one of the coolest things we can ever rest in. It isn't a thing. The truth of Christianity isn't just an idea. The truth of Christianity is a person. And that person has a name. And his name is Christ Jesus, our Lord. We put on Christ. Truth is not something that has to be pieced together and and willy-nilly just looked for all over, but rather it's something that has stood the test of time. It's been reliable. It's, It's much more than just the here and now, the emotions that you feel. You know, the heart is deceitful above all. We use truth to center us, to ground us, to hold us tight, to hold us firm, to bind us in stability. And so we call that truth, as followers of Jesus, we call that doctrine. So doctrine is the teaching about who God is. It's definitive. It's all in here, cover to cover. It paints the picture of who God is and then what he requires of us. Doctrine is the teaching about who God is and what he's required of us to do. You know, but the cool thing about this even further is we rest in Jesus, but the thing about Jesus is he doesn't just tell us to memorize a whole bunch of facts, but he actually invites us into this process. It's an experiential thing. This isn't just an intellectual exercise where you're being asked to just memorize facts and res- re- resuscitate them back for a grade on a test, and it's like, all right, you're in heaven, you got 100 on your test, which would have never happened in my life because I don't know if I've ever gotten 100 on a test. Unless I cheated off a guy like Tyler or something. But it's more about experience and and, and getting a chance to really utilize the truths of who God is and what he's requiring of us. We're invited into this process. We rest in the implications of who God is. We rest in the fact of the things that he asks of us to do and to become because of who Jesus is as we said earlier, we long for that mighty warrior. We long for the mighty warrior. We need the mighty warrior to come. And here Jesus comes in the most humble way possible. But he has to prove that he is the mighty warrior. That he wears the belt of truth. And he does that early in his ministry. Even before his ministry began. In Luke 4, 1 through 13. We see... Jesus directly confronted with the wiles of Satan. Just like Adam and Eve were. There's the first Adam. Here comes the mighty warrior. Jesus has been in the desert for 40 days. He's been fasting and praying. He's isolated. He's probably hot. He's exposed. He's hungry. And actually in in Luke it says that Satan was tempting, him, but then when he got really hungry, that's when he came. Now, I don't know about you, I talk about food. If this is your first time, I talk about food a lot. Like, I really like to eat, all right? It is, it is like one of my favorite pastimes is eating food. So if you have a really good restaurant you want to share, I'm all ears. Big Jim's is my number one. If you've never been, let me know. I'll go. I'd look for an excuse to go. All right, but I like to eat. So when I get hungry, it actually turns into more of like a hangry type thing, you know? I started to get frustrated. And I mean, I'll tell you, like, I might give you my youngest child for a cheeseburger. Like, if I'm hungry enough, like, you could have her. I'm joking. I wouldn't trade you my youngest child. But for like a corn dog, whatever it takes, I mean, I get hangry. And here, Satan, the wiles of Satan, he knows when to come. He's that skilled defense attorney. He's just trying to raise a seed of doubt and truth that has been the same forever. And here he comes to deceive. Jesus by spewing lies about what? But if we were to go through Luke, we'd actually see that he's trying, to, t- he's trying to, to trick Jesus. He's trying to pull a loophole back in the word of God, the work of God, and the worth of God. Takumbo Adiyama, he's a Nigerian theologian that I read some this week. This is what he says. He says, in this passage... Satan's aim is to frustrate God's plan of salvation at the outset by enticing Jesus. His proposal and then his quotations from Scripture involve things that are normally considered good. Yet, under both is is hidden the devil's poison. We see how he's just trying to pick a loophole open. But Jesus, all right, he's got to pass this. He's got to do this. He's the mighty warrior. He's the one that wears the belt of truth, and he uses truth, and actually in this case, the truth of Scripture, the sword of the Spirit, which we'll talk about later, to fight off Satan, to prove that he is God's Son, to keep himself righteous and holy and an acceptable sacrifice. And actually we see in verse 13, it says the devil left Jesus until an opportune time. And if we we know the end of the story that Jesus ends up dying on the cross for us. And that's when we see Satan think that he's getting his victory. You know, the truth of the gospel impacts each article of the armor. So as we go through, we've got to start with truth. Everything relates back to Truth, righteousness, faith, peace, and salvation are all grounded in the doctrine of who God is and the implications of how we're supposed to live. So we need to know who our enemy is, but we don't focus on our enemy. The wiles of Satan change. He uses different, different strategies all the time. But the truth never changes. It always stays the same. So when the attack happens, he's coming for us. Where is he trying to attack us? But in our most vital areas. He's always trying to do the most damage. So physically speaking, our most vital areas are vital organs. So that's where he wants to attack. That's where he wants to get to us. And So an area that is incredibly vital to our eternity that only a mighty warrior could secure is our righteousness so now we see how the breastplate of righteousness factors into this what's a breastplate? well in in, in This time when Paul's writing, the wrapping or protection of our loins or vital organs, it was something that went over kind of the top half of your body, heart, lungs, liver, kidneys, all those, what could be covered. It could have been a coat of mail, So just like linked together pieces of chain that could be worn. It could have been like a hard, rigid breastplate that had a back and a front to it. It could have been a breastplate, depending on the soldier, that just had a front to it and straps in the back. It could have been both of them. It could have been a a coat of mail, and then you put the breastplate on top of it. Whatever you could do to secure your vital organs. Well, this is not just a breastplate for a warrior. This is the breastplate of righteousness. What is righteousness? You know, one of our most vital doctrinal understandings in Scripture as you look through is that God is righteous. He is the essence of right. He is always in right standing. He's perfectly perfect. God is perfectly perfect. He's the plumb line for perfection. So for us to live with God... And in his presence for eternity, for us to return to the beauty that we see in the Garden of Eden, to, to be within his righteousness and his perfection, and we say holiness, well, it's just natural that we've got to match that holiness. We've got to match that righteousness. We've got to be just like that. Or there's this discrepancy here. You know, but... Let's be real. I, personally, I got a problem. If that's what the expectation is, is for me to be righteous and match God's righteousness and His holiness, then I, I, I can't live up to that. I mean, I, I, I'm a pretty good guy, at least on my own standards, right? And But even when I inspect the good things that I do and compare them against a righteous, holy perfect God. I even see in my good things, much like the Old Testament claims, that even my good works are filthy rags. You know, Romans 3.23, Paul wrote this. He says, for all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. You know, falling short doesn't seem all too bad. I mean, you know, if you just kind of stumble, right? Is that a big deal? But then I realized that Any imperfection, any imperfection, the slightest imperfection, disqualifies me. And it sentences me to an eternity separated from God. I'll never return to the Eden that I long for. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. A physical death spiritual death for eternity. But just as God didn't leave the children of Israel hanging, we're supposed to wear the breastplate of righteousness. Okay, so there's got to be something here. If we're being strengthened by the God that is all-powerful, then there's got to be a way. And so this is where God comes in. Here is the truth that Satan is powerless to change, but powerful to skew. Satan will attack you in this area. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, he's going to attack you in this area. So be mindful of this. God sent his son, he sent Jesus. Jesus was perfect, he was the essence of righteousness. He was sinless. In his sinlessness, he he thwarted the schemes of Satan in the desert while hungry. That's amazing. I got even more respect for Jesus just on that by itself. But yet he stayed sinless all throughout his life. In his perfection, he qualified to stand with God for eternity. He was righteous. But then what did God do? The loving Father blows my mind. He stripped His Son of His righteousness. And He treated Him as if He was guilty. He took His perfect, righteous Son and He blackened Him with our sin, with my sin, with my failure to to reflect God in my thoughts and my actions and my being. Past, present, future, all of it. For all of us. And Jesus suffered on the cross for that. Now, we can say He suffered physically. Yeah, He took the nails into His arms. He, he wore a crown of thorns for us. He was beaten beyond recognition. He looked more like something you'd see at a meat market than a person. And He took on that physical punishment for us. But that was the least of His concern. The almighty, all-knowing, all-powerful God, transcendent upon anything, holiness, righteousness. He took on God's wrath for us. He stripped the righteousness from his Son. And he suffered so much that he screamed out on the cross in agony, My God, my God, why have you forsaken Isaiah 53.5 says Jesus was crushed for our sins. He didn't sin. Why did God strip the righteousness from him? God treated the innocent one as he was guilty. Why would he do that? He did it so he could treat the guilty one as innocent. We come to this term, imputed righteousness. A sinner is declared righteous by God, purely by God's grace through faith in Christ. Imputed righteousness. He stripped his son, his perfect son, from his righteousness. What was he looking to do with it? Imagine that day. Think about that day at work or that day in life where it's just hard. Nothing seems to go your way. You're tired. You're beat down. You know just the struggle that was before you. Could have been a family issue. Could have been just a work issue, could be anything, I don't know. That heaviness that you feel. And you're like, man, if I can just get home. If I can just get home and put on that sweatshirt or that, wrap myself in that blanket. If I can just get that cup of coffee or tea or whatever it is and just experience just... A chance of tranquility and peace away. God held Jesus' righteousness after he stripped him from him. One of the commentators said, The robe of perfect obedience. The breastplate of righteousness, if you will. That God stripped off the back of his own son he now gives to us. In our sin in our brokenness we get to put on righteousness. We don't have to earn it. We don't have to work for it. We're given righteousness graciously given it. God gives it to us through faith. We confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raises it from the dead. We become righteous. We wear the breastplate of righteousness as a crown that we didn't earn, that Jesus did for us on the cross, and and that, that righteousness screams out to us two truths that we can rest in. That when the wiles of Satan come to attack our vital organs, which are vital piece of our spirituality and our eternity, is the righteousness that we did not earn. It's imputed. It's given to us. And so there's two truths that we can rest in on this. Number one is assurance. We can rest in the assurance of our righteousness. You didn't earn it. So rest in it, because guess what? You can't lose it, because you didn't earn it. Your righteousness, wear it. Oh, what's that feeling on that day when you can just wrap up in that blanket and feel that comfort? Imagine that for eternity. Imagine that when we're staring in the mirror at our sin. We can rest. In righteousness we didn't earn. But now don't be deceived. Satan don't like this. He ain't happy. He's powerless to change this, but he's powerful to skew it now. You didn't earn it, so rest in it, because you can't lose it, but here he is. He's going to attack some of you self-righteous folk like myself, who loves to stack up my goodness to myself. Ah, Chris, you sure look good in that that righteousness, don't you? But you might need to check in a few more boxes to make sure you don't lose it. Chris, Chris, looks good, but you could earn something better than that. Come on, righteousness, really, that's all God has for you. That's it. That's all. Go get something better. No, no, I didn't earn it. I'm going rest in it because I can't lose it. I'm going to gird myself back up with a belt of truth. I'm going to hold on to that truth. I'm going to experience that truth. I'm going to rest in that truth, feel that truth. But the other part, part of righteousness is a, there's an assurance, but there's also a challenge here. There's a challenge. Just because you didn't earn it, Doesn't mean it came cheap. Didn't come cheap, and it surely didn't come easy. Because I tell you, Satan doesn't like this. It's like, come on, man, really, Chris? Your sin isn't that bad. Really? It's that bad? Man, the cross isn't that important. You got your get out of hell free card. Go do whatever you want to do. It doesn't matter. No, no, I got to gird up my truth. I got to gird up truth here. Listen, I didn't earn it and it didn't come cheap. God expects me to know who He is and He also changes how I live. I'm girding up truth in the midst of my righteousness. The destruction in the garden, the wiles of the devil from the very beginning have been undone by the mighty warrior. We just sang that line. Jesus is the one that did it. And Satan is madder than a wet hornet. Man, he hates this. He coming after you. Wet hornets look for anything to sting. Anything. Even if you didn't get him wet. They're you. They're looking for you. He knows that we stand firm in victory. We don't have to stand firm for victory. The victory has been won. And we've been given ample protection for his schemes. But the question is, do we believe this? This is the challenge today. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? What I want you to consider today is is how are you experiencing the truth of the gospel? This isn't just some intellectual exercise. This is an opportunity for us to be invited into the truth of who Jesus is. This is why I love being in a congregation with such a diverse population. Because life is hard, when life gets hard, that's when he's coming. We can experience the truth of the gospel. We can rest in who Jesus is. But do you know the truth of the gospel? Do you know the truth of who God is? How do we know that? Well, we, we know that through just simply reading the word of God. The word of God is true. True. Truth need not fear scrutiny. Tear it apart. Ask questions. Dive into it. Challenge it. It's okay. It's been the same for a long time. It's not scared of you. Actually, God wants us to do that. He wants us to press in. He wants us to see who He is on a real, experiential way. Faith doesn't happen by accident. It's over time. You got to take one step to get to the next, to get to the next, to get to the next. How are you experiencing the truth of the gospel? I'll tell you this week, this week's been hard. Just as a confession before you from your pastor, incredibly hard. As a family, we're dealing with some hard stuff. I can't imagine going through this and not having something that I can anchor to. Not having the truth of who God is and what he expects of me for me to just desperately cling to. than to wear my righteousness, what I didn't deserve, and to have assurance in that and rest in that. You know what, if God can earn my righteousness, He can do anything. If Jesus Christ can be risen from the dead and defeat death, God can do anything, and I can rest in that. And I'll tell you this week, I, I had to be reminded there are times when, when pastors plan sermons and we look through windows and we're like, yeah, we're going we're gonna to get that person in our congregation. I'm just kidding, we don't do that. Um, we look through windows and we're like, man, I see hurt and I see brokenness in our people and we want to heal the afflicted. And there's sometimes we see pride and arrogance and we want to afflict the healed. But there are other times where we plan sermons and we look in mirrors. And I tell you, this was one of those weeks I needed to be reminded of the truth that we have in Christ Jesus and what he has done for us, that he is the mighty warrior, that he has never changed, that he is gracious and compassionate and slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness for all generations and that this truth has been true since the beginning of time and it will be forever i don't know what you what truth you need to rest in and who god is i don't know if it's just that he is all-powerful, all-knowing. I don't know if it's an attribute where it's a characteristic piece where you just need to rest in grace, where you need to realize His righteousness. I don't know. But we have this, this sacrament in church called communion, Lord's Supper, where this is a, a, a point to, this, 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 this is a time for us as followers of Jesus to look and see who God is and what He expects of us. This is the time for us to confess within ourselves to a holy God, to say, hey, I am not living up to what you expect of me. This is the time for us as followers of Jesus to just get a sense in worship and just say Thank you, God, for who you are. In the midst of my brokenness, I am going to wear my righteousness with a smile on my face because I didn't earn it. And I know I can't lose it. And I know it didn't come cheap. So it's through your body and your blood that has gained me righteousness. God, you stripped away your son's righteousness for me to wear it. I am not going to abuse it, and Lord, I am sorry for the times that I've have. Man, God is so good. I don't know what it is that you're like. What what's tumultuous within you? I'm gonna, we're gonna take just a minute and just have some quiet to go to God in prayer, to praise Him, to thank Him to confess before him, to pray for someone else, to pray for yourself, whatever it may be. Take a deep breath. We can rest in the righteousness that was secured for us. Let's do that now. Father we know that if we rewind thousands of years we're we're very well aware of the wiles of Satan we see the brokenness and we long for the the redemption of what was in the Garden of Eden that we're promised later when you return and Lord we're, we're very aware of our sin and Lord if we're not I pray that you'll just wear us out until we are that your righteousness did not come cheap, that you expect holiness because you are holy. But Lord, you're not an accuser. You're not a deceiver. You're not a divider. Lord, you are good, and you're right, and you're true. And Lord, we praise you and glorify you that you sent your Son, Jesus Christ, as the mighty warrior to do of all things defeat Satan's schemes through his death and his burial and his resurrection. And so, Lord, that's what we look to today. We rest in that. We accept your grace. Accept your mercy. Lord, we ask all of this in your holy name. Amen. But Jesus was in the upper room. Preparing to do the very thing that we get to rest in. And he looked at his disciples and he said, this here is bread. I'm going to give it to you, but it's going to be different this time. Take this. Take it. For this is not just bread. It is my body that is broken for you. It is the stripping away of my righteousness so you can wear it. Wear it and wear it well. Rest in it for you didn't have to earn it, but it's not coming cheap. So take this, eat it, and do it in remembrance of me. And likewise, he did with the, the wine. He held it up and he said, this is the wine we drink all the time, but this time it's different. This is further demonstrating the stripping away of my righteousness so you can wear it. This is truth. And not just you, but all generations to come are going to glorify me because of the brokenness I'm going to experience and endure on your behalf. So this is not grapes. This is my blood that is being poured out for you on the cross freely so you can wear my righteousness. Take it, drink it, and do this in remembrance of me. Lord, we praise you, we honor you, we glorify you. Lord, I... I I am so thankful for the truth that I get to desperately cling to. And even on hard weeks like this week, and I've had so many good ones. This is an anomaly, but man, it's been hard. But your truth does not change. And I praise you for that. So Lord, as we as a congregation worship you in these next few minutes through song, Lord, let it come to you in a way that is pleasing to you, that's honoring to you, that's glorifying to you. Lord, we ask all of this in your holy and heavenly name. Amen.